I got a real treat this morning in Sunday school. I got to see how long and lanky I look up here. Uh, before I get going here, I just wanted to say we, you know, we, we welcome visitors all the time, but we have some special visitors this morning, and I just want to recognize them. A lot of you have already had a chance to mingle with them and get to know them in various ways. Uh, there were times for people to get together over at Robin Therian's house on Saturday, and then there was a time in Sunday school to hear Tyler Hellenbeck, uh, speak to us and get an idea of what he's like. Tyler and his wife, Grace, are here from Chicago. Tyler is a candidate for the new associate pastor position that we have, and we've been glad to have them with you. And if you haven't had a chance after the service, you can meet them out in the foyer. Uh, Why don't you stand so people can see who you are? (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) Okay. Well, I hope all the technology works this morning. Uh, I had a few too many verses in this message that I was referring to, so I figured it would be better to have them up behind me so you're not getting lost as I go through them. But this morning... We're looking at the eighth chapter of the letter of the Hebrews in our series on Christ, our better hope. And we've read that this morning. We've been examining chapters six and seven over the last three weeks. And we've seen them weave a picture of the progression that's taken place in the covenants between God and his people over time. They started with the promises that God made to Abraham to bless him, to make a great nation of him. And through him to bless all the nations of the earth. And this was a covenant for which God took sole responsibility, as we read in Genesis. Here we go. Come on, technology. There we go. Ah, Now what do we do? Is it up here? Good. (laughs) It's not. There it goes. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Hebrews then goes on to connect the certainty of these promises to Abraham with the steadfast hope that we can have in God's promises because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And the key to this argument in these passages is based on a prophetic psalm, 110, in which we find a peculiar reference to an Old Testament story involving Abraham. It's a little bit slow. Are we going to have to just click back there? This doesn't seem to be working. Ah, there we go. Or did you do it? I'll try to give an indication when I'm getting one up. Okay, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Genesis 14 recounted the story of how Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that is the king of peace, priest of the most high God, met Abraham after the rescue of his nephew Lot. And he blessed Abraham and accepted a tithe of the plunder that Abraham had recovered from the kings who had captured his nephew. The reason this is significant is because the person the psalmist is speaking of, who is to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, is also referred to in that psalm as my Lord, and is said to sit at the right hand of the Lord and to rule in the midst of his enemies. These claims are guaranteed with that declaration that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, reminiscent of the unconditional promises that God made to Abraham himself. Hebrews clearly interprets this psalm as speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, who would be a new kind of priest, a royal priest ruling over an eternal kingdom, seated continually in the presence of the Lord in contrast to the human priests that served according to the Mosaic Law. Hebrews 7 develops this in greater detail. Since Melchizedek accepted tithes from Abraham, he must be greater than Abraham. And therefore, his priesthood must be greater than that of the Levitical priests who were descended from Abraham. And the text strengthens this argument by observing that if the Levitical priesthood was able to make anyone perfect through keeping the law, then... That would have been the end of it. But the psalmist says there's a new royal priest, a new order that's coming, this order of Melchizedek, implying that the old commandments and the priesthood would soon be set aside because they were weak and unable to make anyone perfect. We're reminded that Jesus couldn't have even been a priest under the Mosaic law, since he wasn't descended from the tribe of Levi. He was, however, from the tribe of Judah, the tribe the Messiah was to come from. And when Jesus was tried before the Jewish high council, he referred to himself as the Son of Man, a messianic title from the prophecies of Daniel. And he claimed he would soon be seated at the right hand of God. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. His resurrection demonstrated his indestructible life. And before his ascension in the passage that we call the Great Commission, he went further and claimed that all authority in heaven and on earth was his and that he would be with us always to the end of the age. Those were outrageous claims for any human being to make, especially a Jewish man. Yet no one else had ever claimed that he was going to be executed and come back to life three days later and actually accomplish it. The author of Hebrews simply confirms what Jesus has essentially claimed for himself, that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Psalm 110. His resurrection and ascension were convincing evidence that he actually was the Son of God, now exalted to the heavens and seated on high at the right hand of God. Unlike the Levitical priests before him, he was holy, innocent, 
unstained. He didn't need sacrifices made for him. And because of that, he was able himself to offer the sacrifice for sins once and for all by giving his own life in exchange for ours. Where could he now better serve as a high priest of this new covenant between God and man than at his father's right hand? And that's where we pick things up in today's passage in chapter 8, where it reiterates that this is the kind of priest that we now have. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The text now focuses on the difference between what the holy place and sacrifices under the old covenant were and what has replaced them under the new covenant. We already see a mention of this in this passage right here where it says that Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. In the Mosaic covenant, the tent of meeting was the most sacred place. It was viewed as the place where God dwelt among his people. But it was a temporary construction built by human hands after a pattern that God gave Moses. God's real dwelling place is in heaven. The tent and the sacrifices the priests offered on the Mosaic Covenant were just a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They served to illustrate the holiness of God and how our sin prevents us from coming into his presence. The Day of Atonement was an annual reminder of this. As once a year, a high priest would approach the presence of God behind the veil in the holy place in the tent of meeting. And he could only do this after a process of ritual purification, requiring the sacrifice of a bull and sprinkling some of his blood on the mercy seat. That's more commonly known these days as the Ark of the Covenant, thanks in part to Indiana Jones. Properly cleansed himself, the high priest would then go outside to sacrifice a goat and then return a second time to sprinkle some of its blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. When this passage speaks of a heavenly holy place and a true tent set up by the Lord, not man, and then says this earthly tent and sacrifices are copies of the heavenly things, we're not to think that there are tents of animal skins and bulls and goats being sacrificed in heaven. They were very visual reminders that we cannot approach God without a proper sacrifice ourselves to atone for our sin. They made the very clear point that sin is costly. A price has to be paid to set things right again with God. They anticipated the perfect sacrifice that Jesus would one day provide. The fact is we've all lived in rebellion against God, choosing our own way. And it's not enough for us to simply come to him and say, I'm sorry, God, you know, for all my mistakes, I, I'd like to make it up to you now. That doesn't work so well with other ordinary people, fallen people like ourselves. And it certainly doesn't work with a holy God. It may help to visualize this with a medical analogy. Imagine... That all humanity has been infected with a deadly disease for which there is no cure. 
Death is certain. Our only hope would be a transfusion of blood from someone who has been able to overcome the disease and develop antibodies to it. This form of treatment has actually been in use for over 100 years and was used recently in Ebola outbreaks in, in Africa. It only works, of course, if the victim of the disease has been able to survive it and develop those antibodies. Human vaccines are a little bit different. They work by using a weakened form of the microbe or whatever it is that's causing the disease to stimulate our own body's defense against it. But the disease we suffer from is sin. No human being can overcome that disease on its own, on his or her own. And there is no weakened or artificial form of it that can help us build an immunity to the real thing. Sin is sin. It's rebellion against God's sovereignty. And it separates from us from having a relationship with Him. Nothing we can do can restore that relationship. It's interesting to note that over 3,000 years ago, the Mosaic Covenant spoke of the necessity of a blood sacrifice to provide purification for the consequences of sin. And that modern medicine now has come to understand that blood is central to both the disease-fighting abilities of our bodies and cleansing their cellular waste, as well as delivering life-getting oxygen and nourishment to them. Cleansing from sin and imparting new life are the reasons why the Son of God came into the world He created as one of us, but perfect and sinless. He came to take our sin on Himself and destroy it through His death on the cross. His resurrection was proof that He overcame it once and for all. And now He lives to infuse His life into us through His indwelling Spirit so that we can be free from sin's control. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. C.S. Lewis described this in this way in Mere Christianity. He, that is Christ, came into this world and became a man to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing less. Hebrews 8 also uses the word shadow to describe the relationship between the Old Testament priests and sacrifices and their real counterparts in heaven. Shadows are the result of real things. But they aren't quite real themselves. They're actually the absence of something. They're what results when rays from a source of light are cut off by an opaque object. And that's basically the primary definition Merriam-Webster gives. They give us some impression of the object blocking the light, but only a poor outline. The details are lacking. And that's what these old, old covenant symbols serve to do. They portrayed in a continuing earthly drama something that was to take place 
at one unique point of intersection between heaven and earth. No one living under the old covenant could have conceived of the real drama that was taking place in heaven. Because sin had broken our relationship with God, a sacrifice and a mediator were needed to reestablish that relationship. Who could have imagined that God would somehow take human form himself as a sacrifice that would never need to be repeated and would become the mediator who would reestablish fellowship between God and man? Remember, this epistle was written to Hebrew believers who, in the face of opposition, were struggling with thoughts of returning to their old covenant practices. The letter has built a strong argument that Jesus is a better priest than the Levitical priests could ever be and provides a more sure hope for their, as an anchor for their souls. And it's now made the argument that their own scriptures indicate that the Old Covenant needs to be replaced because it's weak and ineffective. Why would anyone want to fall back into dependence on those old practices that could never make them perfect, no matter how many sacrifices were offered, when they had come to know of the New Covenant that offers to accomplish that very thing, not because of our own efforts, but as a free gift based on the work of Jesus Christ? As we move on in this chapter, in verse 8-6, the text now turns to another Old Testament prophecy, this time from the book of Jeremiah. Hebrews quotes this from the Greek Septuagint version of the passage, and it's slightly different than the original Hebrew, which is translated in our, our Old Testament, the Old Testament in our Bibles. This prophecy was given at a time when some of the people of Israel, of Judah that is, had already been led captive to Babylon. And now Jerusalem itself is besieged and is about to be destroyed. And the temple that had replaced the original tent of meeting is soon to be no more. Can you imagine the desperation the Jews were feeling as they were besieged in their capital city? They were being starved out with no hope of rescue unless... God could do another miracle like he did when the Assyrians attacked them in the days of Hezekiah. But this was a people that had broken his covenant many times over and had about as much faith in sacrifices in the temple as they did in sacrifices on their rooftops to the god Baal. That's the atmosphere in which Jeremiah, imprisoned by the king of Judah, foretells of a day coming when God would establish a new covenant with the houses of Israel and Judah. The prophecy begins by recalling the day God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and gave gave them the law through Moses. They had sworn to keep it then, saying, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. But their obedience didn't take very long to evaporate in the Sinai Desert. God's words through Jeremiah put it concisely. They did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. That's a pretty brief summary of hundreds of years of history spanning the Exodus, the Judges, and all the kings of Israel and Judah. It may seem a bit strange to hear God say he showed no concern for his people. 
He, he seemed to have shown a great deal of concern. He sent judges and prophets to call them back to him time after time when they'd repeatedly failed to live up to the, their requirements in the covenant. But the covenant came with a promise of both a blessing and a curse, as we hear Moses declaring near the end of his life. I call heaven and earth to witness against you that I have set before you life and death, Blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give to them. Their failure to choose to follow the Lord meant the loss of God's blessing Now they were on their own in a cruel world, and it eventually meant the destruction of the nation they knew it, along with the temple where they should have been worshiping him faithfully and seeking his guidance and protection. However, the Lord wasn't about to ignore his people forever. You see, they were still part of the covenant that he made with Abraham that depended only on him to bless all the nations through his family. And that would involve a new and better covenant. The old covenant, the Ten Commandments, was written on stone tablets. It was to be read to the people each year at the major festivals. Moses had also instructed them, "These words I command you today shall be on that I command you today shall be on your heart." The people were to take God's commandments to heart. They were to memorize them and teach them to their children. And they were even to write them on the doorposts of their homes to remember to obey God. Unfortunately, those instructions seemed about as effective at changing their behavior as our New Year's resolutions are these days. The new covenant came with a different promise, though. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It would appear that God didn't intend for his people to just internalize the words on their own anymore. He intended, them, he intended to write them into their minds and on their hearts so they would be with them all the time. But how is this to be any different than what Moses had said of the laws that he gave them? It may become clearer when we view this in connection with the promises that follow in this particular text, where it reads, And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. That was not a statement that was likely to be made by the average Israelite. Knowing the Lord was for priests and prophets, and maybe later for scribes and Pharisees, But when God gave the law, the people wanted to stay as far away as possible. They were happy for God to speak through Moses. They feared even hearing him lest they die. In what way then, under the new covenant, would we not need teachers any longer because each of us was to know the Lord? The opening verses of the epistle to the Hebrews actually point to the reason for this as they proclaim the dramatic change that has taken place under the new covenant. God previously had communicated with his people through prophets, human prophets, but now he has spoken through his son, 
No longer were the people restricted to knowing an invisible God through his interaction with a few select individuals or through the written commands that he gave them for his people to live by or his prophets calls for them to repent and forsake their idolatrous ways and follow him again. Now they could see God in action in their world relating to ordinary people, caring for their, their, their needs, healing their diseases, as well as calling them out for their greed and hypocrisy. They now could connect a human face to the living God. The disciples lived with Jesus for three years. And in a true relational sense, they came to know him as Jesus himself declared. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. This kind of relationship with his disciples was to continue even after Jesus left the earth. He promised that he would send his spirit to live in them. And in saying that, he spoke, spoke of it in the same kind of intimate, knowing relationship. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This promise isn't for everyone. It was addressed to those who love him and keep his commandments. The disciples would never have come to know him in the first place if they hadn't chosen to follow him and to learn his ways. Being a disciple implies a commitment to follow a teacher or master in order to become like them. Finally, this promise to his followers to receive the spirit of truth clearly wasn't to cease with his immediate disciples, because in Jesus' final prayer before his crucifixion, he prayed that God would watch over not only them, but over all the generations of disciples that would follow as each one shared the gospel with succeeding generations. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. We ourselves are the beneficiaries of countless disciples sharing the good news of this new covenant over the course of more than 2,000 years. This principle of making disciples was the focus of the Great Commission Jesus gave to the original disciples before his ascension. As we choose to follow Christ and we learn his ways by studying his life in the Gospels as well as the early church itself in Acts and the New Testament epistles, his spirit begins to transform our minds and hearts so we become more like Christ ourselves. We begin to think and act like him. He begins to live his life through us as that good infection that Lewis spoke of that spreads to others around us and works to overcome the forces of evil in this world. This promise of the spirit and knowing God in a personal family way was something Paul emphasized in his epistles in many different places. Tyler referenced one of them in, in the Sunday school class that he taught. One of the first times he mentioned this was in his first epistle to the Galatians, where he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Do we often take Paul's statements to this effect as a simple fact that we just accept this true without having any sense of experiencing it? We're told that feelings follow facts and faith. But where does loving Christ come in? Love is said to be an intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest and pleasure in something. It's certainly not like the villain Bill Sykes' answer to his girlfriend Nancy in the musical Oliver when she asks, Do you love me? And he answers, I love you, don't I? When I was standing up in front of a church watching Phyllis walk up the aisle a long time ago, I wasn't thinking about what was whether I was going to have to give up something in order to live with her for the next 50 years. I was thinking, wow, we're going to get to share our lives together. And having a flat tire on I-94 on our way to Detroit, through Detroit, as we started off on our honeymoon the next day, didn't really matter as long as she was with me. Some of us may be less emotional than others, but it's hard to imagine that Paul isn't talking about something beyond just facts and knowing them when he prays that the Ephesian believers might be strengthened through power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. Perhaps any lack in our experience of this love has more to do with the extent to which we love Him and desire to obey His commands. In his book, The Great Omission, Dallas Willard, a well-known Christian author who was a philosophy professor for 48 years at the University of Southern California, wrote this. Discipleship as an essential issue disappeared from the churches. And with it, there also disappeared realistic plans and programs for the transformation of the inmost self into Christ-likeness. One could now be a Christian forever without actually changing in heart and life. Right profession, positive or negative, was all that was required. This has now produced generations of professing Christians who, as a whole, do not differ in character but only in ritual from their non-professing neighbors. At Community Bible, we don't intend to be that kind of church. And it's our desire that each of us as members will be disciples who are continually being transformed by God's Spirit into His likeness, the likeness of Christ, and who will make good use of the gifts that He gives us to carry out the work of His kingdom here in Northern Berkshire. We hope each of you takes seriously the challenge to be those who love Christ and obey His commandments, and who as a consequence come to know God in a truly life-transforming manner. The final promise in Jeremiah's prophecy quoted here in our text is the one that all the others are built upon and which they would be impossible without it. 
For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It wouldn't have been possible to have any relationship at all with God unless the problem of our sin could be dealt with. As I've already mentioned, the law requires animal sacrifices to seek God's forgiveness for the sins of the past year. In doing this, the people of Israel would have often heard recited at their major religious festivals the words of the second commandment regarding the consequences of idolatry. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Steadfast love towards those who love and keep his commandments. That was a wonderful thought. Uh, But the part about a jealous God who doesn't seem to forget sins for three or four generations, that's a different story. But that's the reason why God seemed to ignore and show no concern for his people after their innumerable failures to live up to the old covenant. What would change now that God would no longer ignore his people, but would actually show them mercy and remember their sins no more? We're privileged to be on the other side of this change of covenants. We understand now that God himself was to intervene and pay the price, providing a perfect life as the sacrifice to wipe that slate clean for any sins committed against him, for all who are willing to accept his salvation and follow him as Lord. This chapter closes with the implication that the old covenant may be about to vanish away completely. Perhaps those receiving this letter to the Hebrews would soon hear of the destruction of Herod's temple in 70 A.D., bringing an end to the temple rituals once and for all. It was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, however, that in reality spelled the end of the old covenant practices, making them unnecessary and obsolete. Light and darkness are dominant themes in God's Word. The epistle James said, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning due to change. Speaking of fallen humanity, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Peter combines these concepts of light and darkness best in his wonderful description of what the new covenant is all about. But you were chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Have you answered his call to come out of the darkness into his marvelous light? Have you received that perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights? If not, wouldn't now be a great time to catch that good infection so you can receive his life and begin spreading it to those around you.
Are you one of the people of the new covenant who can look forward with sure hope to that future time when the dwelling place of God is with man? He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. If you've made a decision today or you're considering doing so, please tell us about it. And join one of our discipleship classes soon so that you can get started on your journey with Jesus. Let's stand to pray. Lord, we thank you for this new covenant, the covenant that you established by coming down among us so that we could know you in a different way. And making that sacrifice that makes a true relationship with you possible again, that allows us to be adopted into your family. Help us to really know what it means to love you and follow you and obey your commandments. And through that, to know you as our Lord and Savior in a true relational sense, not just as a fact. Pray if there are anyone, any here who have not made that decision that they'll seriously consider it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fellowship that we have as your family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 